Genesis chapter 10, starting at verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is God's word. Our Father, what a strange story here near the beginning of the Bible of uh, humanity trying to build, and you're clearly unhappy with that, we pray we'd understand what the issue was, how the same sin that lurked within them lurks within our own hearts. Would we recognize that? And in the grace of Jesus Christ, would you help us put that to death, cling to him, and live rightly before you, we pray in his great name. Amen. Now, it is a strange story, isn't it, uh, the Tower of Babel? I mean, what is the problem? I mean, the United Nations, good thing, isn't it? You'd have thought so. Different people coming together and trying to cooperate. We'd have thought that was a very good thing. Joint ventures, a good thing. The Olympics, people coming together uh, from different nationalities and trying to uh, put on a spectacle together. That's a good thing, isn't it? Learning languages, surely that's a wise thing to do. And yet here in, in Genesis 11, the Lord God takes the one language being spoken in the one place, and scatters people across the globe. What's the problem? Is the Lord God some sort of divine Prince Charles who can't bear any buildings over three stories tall because they're an eyesore? Or is this just a divine sanction to my inability to never learn a language because that's a bad thing? I mean, is that playing me on... What is? It's a strange story, isn't it, going on here? Why, why is this so bad in Babel? Well, for the, actually, for the next few weeks, uh, from, and uh, from to now and uh, throughout the month of August, over the summer months, when there's a reasonable amount of uh, coming and going, as a topical series, really, is what we're doing, looking at different aspects of sin. So every week, sin is X. And uh, tonight, uh, what is sin? Sin is building building. Now, don't 
immediately get upset if you're in the construction industry. Um, it's not inherently a problem, and there are one or two engineers in the construction industry and architects and the like. Uh, don't immediately, this is not an assault upon your chosen career. Uh, we need to define it rightly. But essentially, yes, the, the sin of Genesis 11 is building. Not the action, but the motive behind it. That's the problem. It might sound a little bit gloomy to spend a month just different ways of describing sin. Apart from it's a very rich topic in many ways, the Bible has lots of uh, perspectives on what sin is, and there's a sense in which it is just at the heart of Christian living. The heart of Christian living each and every day is repentance and faith. Every day. That's what it is to be a Christian. To repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ again. Not becoming a Christian every day, but just to, to live that out every day. Repentance and faith. And there's a sense in which, as we go deeper into our repentance and recognize the, the sinful creatures that we are, as we go deeper into that, there is a obvious correlation. We, therefore, are more grateful to our Savior and exalt Him more. And actually, as the gap between those two grow, that is maturity. It's right there between the gap in those two between how little we think of ourselves and how highly we think of our Saviour. As that, gra- as that gap grows, so does Christian maturity. Repentance and faith. It's at the heart of the Christian life. So it's a good thing uh, to think about different aspects of sin for a month. Let's orientate ourselves then in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, what's going on? Well, some will remember we've um, spent some time in Genesis over the last uh, two years uh, here in the evening. Now, so hopefully you're familiar. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall in the Bible. It's when Adam and Eve uh, rebel against the Lord God. And what happens? They are they are kicked out of Eden to the east. And in Genesis speak, that is always bad. Now, again, if you happen to eat, uh, live more east side of London, don't take this the wrong way. But in the book of Genesis, to travel east is always a wicked thing to do. It's always a, f- I don't know if that way is east, anyway. To travel east is always a foolish thing to do. East is bad, in Genesis speak. So we join them here in uh, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. And they're traveling east. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. It's always bad to go east. East of Eden is outside of God's blessing. That's why, uh, for uh, uh, literary buffs, uh, John Steinbeck, the American uh, writer, his greatest novel, ah, you can argue about that, but most people do his greatest novel is East of Eden. That's what he titled it. And because it is, it is a novel essentially about two families who are absolutely dysfunctional in their hatred within the families, their hatred between the families, and how this hatred leads to mutual destruction. That's what life is like east of Eden. There's competition. There is war. or outside of God's blessing. At one point in the book, which is very striking little speech or description um, in the mouth of one of his characters. He says this, We all have in us a secret pond where evil and ugly things germinate and grow strong. But this culture is fenced, and the swimming brood climbs up only to fall back. Might it not be that in the dark pools of some men, the evil grows strong enough to wriggle over the fence and swim free? 
That's life east of Eden. Do you see what he's saying there? Actually, within all of us, there's the capacity for evil. That lies within all of us. But for some men or women as well, the opportunity presents. Circumstances coalesce and their evil just bursts over. So you you might think of, uh, in one setting, uh, uh, a Bashar al-Assad, who given the opportunity, resources, his evil is capable of exceptional destruction towards his people. Or um, or in Norway, the, the, the gunman and Anders Bering, you know, just shooting those children on that island. What, why, why would he do that? Well, Steinbeck's saying that's within all of us. But most of the time when we do evil, you know, there's, there are restraining factors upon us. Our upbringing, our family, our friends, our culture, our society will hold it back. But for some, evil just bursts out. But that's within all of us. And sometimes that happens. We're capable of that sort of great evil. East of Eden. Now here Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is presented as the very low point of man's humanity. It's not chronologically placed here. So uh, the reason we read um, the slightly seemed random verses beforehand is just to make that point. So in Genesis chapter 10, verse 31, many languages are being spoken. Actually, if you read chapter 10, three times there's a reference to the many languages being spoken. Verse 32, the nations have spread out over all the earth. So this chapter 11, the account of the story of uh, the Tower of Babel, this is not logically or chronologically placed. The reason it's here is because in Genesis speak, Genesis 3, there's the fall of mankind and then there's a spiral down. And this is as bad as mankind gets. This is the lowest point. Why is it here? What's the point of it being placed here at the end of this section of Genesis? Well, it's to show us that mankind is capable of wickedness. Shows us that God is kind to restrain our wickedness, to not let it wriggle out and get out of control. But the main thing is, it shows us that we need God to come in and do something. And if you know your Bible, Genesis chapter 12 does come on the, excuse me, God does come on the scene and start all over again with Abraham. Abraham, let's go. With you, I'm going to start a, a whole, a whole new program here. You're going to be the father of many nations. So it sets that up. We're brought to a point of depravity, to shown how depraved mankind would be. So we see how desperately we need the living God. That's what's going on. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, chapter 1 then. Sorry, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. It begins with a wonderful picture of unity. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Literally there was one word and one lip. Uh, the emphasis being not just a, a shared language, but a, a, a perfect understanding of the vocabulary. So whatever was spoken was understood rightly. No longer those slightly embarrassing conversations when the the American worker says to his English colleague in the office, what do you think of my new pants? And the English worker, you know, there's no, there's no miscommunication when the teenager comes up to you and says, your new, your new haircut's really sick. You know, there's no, you know, I was I was on a children's camp last week and was told I had a sick haircut. I just 
just very bewildering. But he explained that's a good thing. I was surprised, but um, there's one language and one lip here. There's perfect communication, perfect understanding. But they're moving east, always bad. If you see the narrative, it breaks down very simply, really. There's a little speech by mankind. There's a little speech by the Lord. In the middle, the turning point is uh, verse 5. We'll look at that in a moment. The Lord comes down. So let's break it that way. Um, The little speech from mankind is essentially this. Let us build without reference to God. In verses 3 and 4. Let us build without reference to God. Verse 3 then shows the evolving technology of the ancient Near East. You may not find it interesting. Some of you will. Um, They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, if you are in the construction industry, don't get carried away and think, oh, why do they do that? That's very interesting. Just stay with me. Stay with the point. That's a little minor detail. Yes, you. Um, Now, what the the real point comes in verse 4. Here's the key. They want to build two things to achieve two things. So verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city, one, with a tower, two, that reaches to the heavens, so that, what, we may make a name for ourselves, one, and not be scattered, two. They want to build two things, a city and a tower, to achieve two things, a name for themselves, and not being scattered. And again, The problem is not the tower, it's the motives behind the tower. A name for ourselves and not being scattered. It's the motives which is the issue here. Technology is neutral, and that's generally true, of course. We get that, that's very obvious. You uh, go to the shops and you buy a screwdriver, you can use it to construct things from Ikea. You could use it to stab someone if you wanted to. Technology is neutral. Mankind, in, in uh, in its cleverness... And ingenuity splits the atom. And you can use that in a, helpfully to make power, destructively to make bombs. Technology is neutral. The issue is how you're going to use it, the motivations behind it. What do you want to achieve with the technology you've got? And the problem here, again, is the motives. They want to build a tower because they're proud. I'll explain that in a moment. They want to build a city because they're scared. Let's just take those two in a moment. Take those two uh, uh, in turn. The first, then, is the pride. So do you notice in verse 4, two times we get they want to make a name for themselves. Verse 4, come let us build ourselves, for us, a city. And then at the end, so that we may make a name for ourselves, for us. Let's build for our good. They're not, they're not building a tower to, to reach up to God because they want to be near him. In the mindset of Genesis, if you build a tower to heaven, heaven is where God dwells in Genesis thought. To build a tower, that's an invasion. That's we want to be where God is. And we want to do it for ourselves. We want to we want to achieve. We want to create significance. We want to create immortality in our achievements. We want to do it for us. That's a very modern phenomenon. Of course it is. It's timeless. So, in, in a similar way, remember back in, what was it, May? The vast statue, 
much higher than this building, the vast statue of Kim Jong-il that was unveiled in Pyongyang because you must recognize him, him and his father. They have these vast statues set up for the people to worship because in a, in a, a, a mindset, a, a, an atheistic mindset, that has deliberately set itself up in opposition to God. Worship us. We've built these big towers. Bizarrely, I think at some point in the next few years, we see it in the city of London, uh, when there's going to be built the first atheist temple, apparently. You see, Alan de Botan, uh, the philosopher, who uh, his self-declared mission is to rescue atheism from the nasty atheists such as Richard Dawkins, uh, so it's associated with nice people like him. It's a little bit of competition going on there, I think. But um, so his plan is to build a vast black obelisk skyscraper height in the middle of the city of London to recognize, to create a sense of awe for what mankind can achieve. Hurrah for mankind. Look at us. And we're quite small compared to this thing. It's like a bizarre temple to atheism. I guess more commonly, more simply, you see it in the lives of many who are working in our city, who through their careers seek to satisfy their material aspirations, their spiritual aspirations. They want to achieve something. They want to make a name for themselves. So, I mean, it's a simple question, let me ask it. When you build your career, maybe a little later on, maybe when you build your family, are you doing it for you to make a name for yourself? Or are you going about your career constructing a career for the glory of God? And if you spend your time daydreaming, thinking, I will do this job, and then I will go on to this job, and I will do this job, and I'm constructing a career for myself, and that's the trajectory. And if you do that without reference to God, you are trying to make a name for you. You are building for yourself. Don't do that. Uh, that's the first thing, pride. The, the, the pride is building a, a tower uh, to make a name for yourself. Uh, the second thing that's going on here in verse 4 is fear. This is a bit more subtle, but fear is they don't want to be scattered. That's disobeying, quite simply. So back in Genesis 1, uh, the commandment, uh, uh, as Adam and Eve are created, the commandment is be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Get Noah and the flood. At the end of that, when Noah and his family emerge from the ark, the command is repeated. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. You're going to have to spread out all over the earth. But rather than do that, here in chapter 11, verse 1, they moved eastward, they found a plain, and they settled. That's disobedient. God said, scatter over all the earth. These people said, we found a plane. It's nice here. It's safe here. We can just feather our nests here and be comfortable and secure and no harm will come to us. It's disobedient. 
No, just to be clear on that. There's no problem with safety. Of course there's not. Safety is a good thing. To to strive for safety is a very sensible thing. If you're going on holiday in the next few weeks and you've taken out travel insurance, that is a wise thing to do. You have shared your um, risk with other people to make yourself safe in case you're real over. Well, yeah, something like that. That's very safe. That's a, sorry, that's a very sensible thing to do. Safety is sensible. Safety which comes at the expense of obeying the Lord is not good. What was going on here with them? They was they wanted to build a city in this nice, comfortable plain so they were safe. They were scared of loneliness. They're scared of being vulnerable. They thought if they remain together, they'll all be very safe and secure. It's the herd mentality. We get that. We get that. I've probably observed before. I think it's hilarious, really. I mean, we all do it. There's no good complaining. But the herd mentality, you see it in what people wear. So as I wander around here in the week, well, at the moment, everyone's wearing yellow fluorescent jackets and saying steward and standing around and not doing very lot. But normally, outside of the Olympics, when you wander around here during the week, you can just tell what people do from what they wear. So all the, there's mainly property and um, private equity around here. All the property guys, they all wear the same sort of suits and shirts and ties. They just all wear that. Now, if you're in a private bank, you wear a, you wear a suit and a shirt, no tie. Mm-mm-mm. Because we're just a little bit cool. If you work in a hedge fund, and many do round here, you wear blue jeans, a white t-shirt, and v-neck merino wool jumper. That's what you do. It's just, it's just hilarious. They'll just wear precisely the same thing. But we get that. You know, and if you wander around at, at, at a certain time of night where I live, all the teenagers, they've all got kind of the same hoodie on, pulled up at just the same, just to reveal the same amount of fringe that is still the same. And if you wander down the King's Road pretty much any day of the week, uh, there's a lot of uh, women wearing kind of the same jeans tucked into the same sort of boots, spending vast sums of money to all look precisely the same as one another. <laughs> and you think that's a bit odd, isn't it? But that's the point. We, we don't want to be different. We want to be together. It's safe when we're together. We don't want to be scattered because then we're a little bit out there on our own. Same thing. You see it, I guess, more more pointedly in modern attitudes towards Jesus Christ. So culturally, it's silly to believe in Jesus. And you talk to your, you know, you some here may know this. Either um, your, you know, Christians have spoken to you and said, you know, you should investigate the Christian faith. I and mean, for ages, you just said, no, nah, it's just silly, isn't it? It's just silly until actually, you thought, well, hold on a minute. Why should I just? Maybe I will investigate it for myself. Some of you here who are Christians, you know this. You try to talk to your friends about Jesus, and it's just, wow, no, it's just all outdated. It's all been disproved. Have you thought about it at all? No. But I don't want to. It's just because it's the culture being created. So there's a, there's a fear here of not wanting to be different, scattered. So again, let me be very clear. No problem with safety. Very good to pay our taxes so that collectively we have a police force. That's a wise thing to do. And an army, a wise thing to do. But when safety comes at the expense of obeying God, it's gone wrong. So let me just, in one sense these are arbitrary, but let me just put it this way, ask a few little things. So when Jesus says, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, 
And we think, yeah, that's what Jesus tells me to do, but, well, it's a bit scary doing that because I don't really like putting myself out there. My friends don't really like it when I speak of Christ. It's just a little bit risky when I do that. Or when Jesus says in Matthew 6, um, don't store up treasure on earth, store it up in heaven. You think, yes, but it's a bit risky, isn't it? A bit scary. I'm a little afraid to really go for that wholeheartedly. Or when Jesus, uh, uh, so, um, when the Spirit says, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been looking at 1 Peter in the, in the mornings, a couple of times you get the obvious comment made, for example, 122, love one another deeply from the heart. You think, yeah, that's a nice thing, but it's a bit risky to do that, isn't it? I mean, if I really open myself up to someone and they let me down, it's a bit risky. Now, safety is a good thing, but if it comes at the expense of obeying the law, it's gone wrong. It's gone wrong, if that's what happens. So again, are you building safety? Here's the question. Are you trying to make safe your life out of fear? And is safety more important to you than obeying the Lord? That's the question. So those are the two questions that flow out of this. Are you building for yourself, constructing whatever it is, a career, for your name's sake or for his? Are you trying to create safety, because that's a sensible thing to do, or are you, are you doing so at the expense of obeying him? Those are the two things really that flow out, I think, of the sin that's going on here. Now look, the turning point uh, comes in uh, verse 5 of the passage. Uh, this is a little speech you have of mankind. The turning point comes verse 5, uh, but the Lord. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the town that the men were building. Uh, it's a funny little verse. Uh, mankind intended to build a tower to the heavens, but God has to come down to see it. Obviously not true. It's not that God is getting a little short-sighted. The point being made here is the grandest effort that mankind has made to reach the heavens. What's this girl here? What's this little thing down here? And he has to come down and see it. Apparently the Great Wall of China is visible from space. That's amazing, isn't it, if that's true? I'm never entirely sure if that is true or not. It was just one of those cracker things. But um, apparently the Great Wall of China is visible from space. That's amazing. But it is just a wiggly line. Not that impressive. Here in Genesis 11, the greatest achievement that mankind has made, it doesn't really challenge God. He has to come down to see it. And he has his little speech. So here's the second speech that takes place. Here's God's speech. It says this essentially, verses 6 and 7. Let us confuse and scatter them. Let us confuse and scatter them. Now what is the issue here? Let me read them again. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Well, the problem is mankind here in their collective rebellion against God has tried to make an assault upon heaven. They've tried to dethrone him, in a sense. So he confuses their language. Now, what do you make of that? Do you think God is overreacting? I think probably I read this and think, I mean, they build a tower. Um, It may not have been as tall as 
one of Danny Boyle's towers that went up pretty quickly on Friday night. I mean, it doesn't sound that bad to me. And God, you had to get your binoculars out and then come down to see it. It doesn't sound that bad. But it is a Genesis 3 sort of crime. We don't want you. We want to be the ones in heaven making a name for us, ourselves. And so God says, this is no good. We can't have the creatures taking over. Makes no sense. Certainly not good for them. What would you do at home? I don't know how many of you have pets uh, at home. Uh, Central London isn't perhaps ideal for pets. But you have Bertie the budgie at home. And one day you come home and Bertie says, I'm in charge. No more of this, you know, giving me little sunflower seeds. I'm in charge and things are going to change. Okay, Bertie, how does that work? You're not going to, I mean, you're not going to let him get away with that. It's not going to happen. But let us just run with me on this one, okay? You're not going to let him get away with that because Bertie can't run the house. Bertie won't know how to put the central heating on. Bertie will get very cold in winter and probably die. Bertie will run out of birdseed pretty quickly. He's not so good with the cupboards you've got in your kitchen. You don't let the creature take over. God doesn't let the creatures take over. It's not good for them. And it's an assault upon him. So he says, let us confuse them. So you see, unless God intervenes here, and divides, nothing stops mankind in their proud desire for autonomy. This division of humanity into different tribes, nations, confusing their languages, it restrains sin. That is what God is doing here in Genesis 11, restraining sin. That is a good thing. Remember the quote from Steinbeck at the beginning. God, what God is doing here is fencing the pond, making it much harder for evil to wriggle out and do something appalling. He's fencing the pond. It's a good thing. Now, two things that flow out of that. Uh, the first is this. Uh, we, um, we live in the shadow of Babel. Unity comes through the cross. The first, then, we live in the shadow of Babel. Humanity hasn't changed. All of us have within us a natural, instinctive desire to make a name for ourselves. We are proud and we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to stand out. There is fear. No longer perhaps so much a collective pride against mankind, uh, sorry, of mankind against humanity. Perhaps now it's more personal and uh, individual pride against him. We build our own towers at the expense of others. And so we live in the shadow of Babel. Every workplace, every marriage lives in the shadow of Babel. So when you go to work tomorrow, there will be people in your office, hospitals, whatever it is. But when you go to work tomorrow, there will be colleagues that are building their own towers. They're not playing team. You can probably think of them now very clearly. They're building their own towers. They're they view you as a colleague, yes, but a rival at the same time. They want promotion earlier than you. They want the credit more than you. People are building their own towers, even in your office place. Within marriages, tragically spouses, they're the same family. It's very easy to build your own towers. And your spouse can be a bit of a rival, either for your children's affection or they get in the way of your comfort. 
build your own towers. But look, every office, every marriage lives in the shadow of Babel. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want our own achievements. We all live that way. And we need to recognize that we can never prevent scattering. We can never prevent that tower building in our own namesake. There'll always be conflict. And to think otherwise is is foolish. I have a book at home. I can't remember who gave it to me, my grandmother or something at some point. Uh, 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 History's Greatest Speeches. And uh, there are some corkers in there. I'm not in there. I'm not surprised. There are history's greatest speeches. And uh, you do every now and again, I pick it up and, and flick through it. One, one there is from 1962, JFK. It's his, we choose to go to the moon. It's a terrific speech that he gave. Uh, inspired, we're going to go to the moon. Let me just read a, 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 sl- a brief insert from it. He declared, there is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. Its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. And at the time, it's very inspiring. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're warring here on earth, but in space, there's no conflict yet. It's so daunting. We can do this together. How did that go? It wasn't long before you had the space race. Two superpowers fiercely competing. Get into space first. Get to the moon first. Build weapons in space. Things were still going on in a slightly different way. North Korea desperate to try to launch a military rocket into space. So far not quite managing it. But that doesn't work. You've got the United Nations. A good thing in many ways. Obviously a well-intentioned organization, but unable to agree on the sanctions that should take place in Syria at the moment. Why? Don't make political points at all, but I think most would say, well, because Russia and China, they have vested interests there. And they don't want to see the pattern there perhaps reproduced in other countries if they ever crack down. A la Chechnya. So because they're trying to build a name for themselves, it's unable to produce unity and agreement in an obviously dreadful scenario. Be realistic about peace in this world. Jesus in Mark 13 or Matthew 24 says to his disciples, there'll always be wars. There'll always be wars. Can't get away from it. The Olympics are terrific, and uh, uh, hopefully many of you get to go to something or other. Uh, terrific, I'm looking forward to uh, tomorrow going to seeing women's judo. Um, uh, at Excel, uh, it's not even at the main park. Um, uh, I'm sure it'll be terrific. I mean, it will be fun, it'll be loads of fun. It wasn't my first choice. Because um, uh, you know, it's at Excel. Anyway, but... Um, uh, but you see the vow they took, this slightly funny, solemn vow that one of the athletes takes. I don't know how far you got with the opening ceremony. Get all the way. You get all the way. Well done. That's uh, very, <laughs> very impressive. But at some point near the end, um, it was a funny thing. One of the athletes grabs a flag and makes a vow, and one of the judges makes a vow. It's a funny old vow. The athlete says, in the name of all the competitors, 
I promise to take part in these Olympic Games, abiding by the rules, without doping, without drug taking, and on it rumbles, for the glory of sport and the honour of all our teams. Really? I think most of the athletes are competing for the glory of sport, or is it kind of for themselves? And as you know, already a couple of stories of athletes uh, who have, um, have failed their drugs test. You know, the guy who beat Cavendish in the uh, cycling that really liked the fact that he won because he took drugs in the past and everyone knows it. Really? No. People want a gold medal so badly they'll cheat. They want to make a name for themselves. Got to be realistic about what can be achieved, how peaceful this world can be. So what do we do? Well, last thing as we finish. Unity comes through the cross. It's the only way that you stop people trying to build a name for themselves and being scared to go out on their own. Unity comes through the cross. The uh, the second Secretary General of the United Nations was a man called Daga Hammerfeldt from Sweden. And uh, very strikingly, as a Director General, made this observation once. The cross of Christ is the only place where the nations can be united. Isn't that striking for a man in his position to say that? The cross of Christ is the only place where the nations can be united. But why is he saying that? Because if you come to the cross of Christ, you can't try and make a name for yourself. You can't. We're all equal at the foot of Jesus Christ. When you come to him, you're saying, I'm a sinner. I can't get into heaven on the basis of my own merits. If I present my own life before you, it's only worthy of your rejection. And that is true of him and her and him and her and you. We're all equal at the foot of Christ, at the cross of Christ. There's no zill lanes that get you there faster to heaven. There's no VIP transit through the hours of security checks. We all get there the same way. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And that's how you create unity. I've said this a number of times before, but one of, I think, the most moving things I ever saw as a Christian was going to Jerusalem and seeing a man born a Jew, a man born a Palestinian Muslim, in church together, holding hands, singing. They'd have killed one another if they hadn't become Christians. They'd have hated one another were they never to become Christians. But they've come to the foot of Jesus Christ. They can hold hands now and sing and look to one another, not with hatred, but saying, you're a sinner, so am I. We come to Jesus on the same grounds. We have nothing. The cross of Christ is the only place where the nations can be united. So what is sin? That's many things, of course. But what is it? It's building. Building a name for ourselves. That's what causes conflict. He does it in our marriages, in our offices, in many arenas, in our families. What's the answer? The answer is you come to the foot of the cross of Christ 
as we often sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, I pour contempt on all my pride. Uh, the only way to avoid building a name for yourself, making a name for yourself, is to recognize we're all sinners of the cross. It's deeply humbling, it's wonderfully liberating, frees us from our fear, pours contempt on our pride. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we confess that instinctive to us is the desire to make a name for ourselves, to make ourselves as safe as we possibly can, even at the expense of serving you and obeying your commandments. Father, forgive us, we pray, for those desires. And bring us once again, or bring us there to the first time, bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus Christ died. He had to die because we're sinful. And with that poor contempt then upon our petty attempts to build a name for ourselves, would we recognize how wonderful he is? Would we rather build and give our lives to building for your glory, for your honor? Work that within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.